Welcome to the Obey Podcast, where we see through mainstream narrative. No propaganda, no bullshit, just the truth. And now, here's your host, Matthew Keck. and welcome to another episode of the Obey Podcast. So if you listened to the last episode, I talked a lot about political tactics going forward for people who consider themselves liberty-oriented, but on this episode, I'm going to talk about something that's, I guess, a lot more wonky or it's more uh, economics-based. So I'm going to talk about a few different pieces I read that really struck a chord with me um, just because they seem very relevant to the moment. So In the last few weeks, we've had a lot of debate over a stimulus package, and a stimulus package was passed by the House, Senate, and then signed into law by Donald Trump. It's going to, well, one of the things that's been talked about a lot is how every American is going to get their $600 check. I know I got mine direct deposited recently, Um, and there's a lot to say about this economic policy. So I, 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 I guess the first thing I wanted to talk about was a broad sentiment I've heard just in news. So... Um, to, to, to keep all you guys from having to do it, I listen to all kinds of news outlets that come from all across the political spectrum. Something you should do if you feel like dedicating the time to it, but unless you're a true masochist, I don't see why you should. Um, I listen to Bloomberg, uh, everything that's partisan. I listen to Pod Save America, I listen to Daily Wire, I listen to National Review, I listen to The Dispatch, The Bulwark, etc., etc. Um, so I, I listen to all this junk. And I get this recurring theme from everybody that isn't an ANCAP or a libertarian, and that's about how important a stimulus package is. So I, I keep hearing the, this recurring message that the Congress and the House need to do something, and I keep hearing about how that they're how disgusting their gridlock is and how they aren't giving people the support they need. And then I keep hearing this recurring statement that the, the government can't really do too much here, especially this coming from the Bloomberg bi- bi- business types. It's, well, the government needs to stimulate the economy. It needs to do something. And the worst thing they could do is too little right now. So th- this led me to this wonderful, this wonderful, wonderful, uh, it, it's just so coincidental. So I, I got my copy of, of the Foreign Affairs. Uh, they, so for Foreign Affairs sends out a book, essentially almost a book-sized magazine uh, every two months. It's about 200 pages, and um, I, I, I on so 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 early this year on Black Friday, I subscribed to a lot of these things just because you could get a good deal, and I just wanted to get some physical, you know, um, I wanted to get some physical materials, just so I could actually give them the time to read through what they have to say, so I could steal my other arguments better, and I could really get into the minds of some of these academics that I disagree with that come from, like, the mainstream um, press. And this is something that I, I, I guess I'm doing it more just because I'm a young person that is still looking for thorough arguments, right? So it's easy for me to listen to Tom Woods and hear, hear them debunk Paul Krugman articles and stuff like this. But every now and then I just want to read, like, a 20-page thought piece from somebody who should be an intellectual leader on the left and then get, get an idea of where a lot of academics are at. Um, and this is just because I'm a masochist and I have a stupid hobby, which is all about um, our political enslavement. But that is aside the point. So I, I, I open up this, this edition of Foreign Affairs magazine 
And I see, of course, an article that is entitled, let me get the direct name of it. Okay, it's called Desperate Times, Desperate Measures, The Lessons of the New Deal. And it's by Meg Jacobs. And of course, as I'm reading this, um, well, uh, of course, my, 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 I'm like, okay, I, I've read, I've heard, I've heard Murray Rothbard talk about the Great Depression. I've heard all kinds of people talk about how, the, uh, about all the myths about FDR and the Great Depression and such. So, of course, this is going to be something that's much more mainstream, that's going to accept a lot of the, you know, th 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 a lot of the things you'll learn in, like, 10th grade about FDR. And I was caught because of the context of this article. It was essentially written... Um, to almost, it's, it's almost a wink about what we should be doing now. So, <laughs> the, the last paragraph on the first page of, of, of this piece, just, it, it caught me so bad. I felt like I was Alex Jones with the, with the cork board, like tying things together. But what she essentially says is that the president knew, and, and she even says, and what those contending with the United States contemporary difficulties would do well to remember is that the biggest mistake you can make is to not do too much. So you have to do, so, 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 so the big issue that people should be remembering now and taking away from the New Deal, according to Make Jacobs, is that we can't do too much in an economic crisis. So then I think it's funny because in the next couple pages, she details how farmers' incomes were low, so the government wanted to drive up food prices, so they bought a bunch of hogs and slaughtered them, even though a bunch of people were starving on the streets, at least farmers' incomes were kept up high. And she even had the gall to acknowledge that a million tenant farmers essentially lost their livelihoods, but at least the other farmers who kept their jobs, their, their incomes went up. And I thought this was almost sociopathic in terms of reasoning, because it's like you just mentioned that a million people were dispossessed and the government slaughtered food that starving people could have eaten. But you wanted to, you wanted to set prices high to keep farmers' incomes up. And that, that, that's, that's what central planning will get you. But aside from not acknowledging that whole point and just talking about how the, 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 the reason she writes this FDR article is so she can tie it into today and remind us, hey, the government's not doing enough and there's no way they could overdo it. They need to do a lot now. So, so then cue in the counter argument from the Wall Street Journal. I saw this. Uh, I, I guess this was from Thursday, December 31st. Who was this written by? It was written by Greg, Greg Ip, I guess that's how you pronounce it, Greg Ip, and he wrote this piece in their capital account column, and he stated what, what I've seen as the obvious, and it's that he, he says, the economic case is another matter. As I argued last week, the economy's biggest problem isn't demand, it is supply. Most Americans have money, they're just constrained in how they spend it because of pandemic-related business restrictions or fear. So he kind of points out that the only argument that these advocates of stimulus are making is that there are people who lost their jobs and need money now. But then Greg kind of walks through it, and he's like, okay, well, yeah, sure, but th but this plan isn't targeted at all. They, they make no effort to target those people that they're talking about. And then he reminds us that there's that whole unemployment insurance bonus that ended up making 75% of the people who claimed it get paid more than their jobs. So he kind of refers to all this just to remind us, and then he's like, yeah, and this isn't targeted well either. And he, he reminds us that the big existential... Um, the, the, the big existential risk that the person who wrote for Foreign Affairs just refuses to acknowledge is that if we do too much, then that, that's kind of what leads us down this road of big spending. And if we ever hit a point where the United States dollar stops being the reserve currency for the world, we're going to get rapid inflation that we haven't seen in, you know, 70 years in any country. So 
at least we have the uh, a relatively mainstream voice pointing out the obvious that we can clearly do too much but that doesn't dispel the overwhelming sentiment on on throughout all these like wall street academic finance types that no the, the government has to do this and they need to be doing more no matter what and, and and they like to ignore and this is part of the whole mmt situation is they like to ignore that the u.s could lose their position as the reserve currency and, and even Greg Gipp acknowledges that he doesn't think it's likely, but if it does happen, it's an existential risk. And this kind of goes to, if any of you guys have read The Black Swan by, um, by Taleb, he kind of talks about how it's not really the odds of, of something happening. It's about taking those odds into consideration with how absolutely existential that risk is. So it's not that you wear a seatbelt in your car because every time you get in a car, you know, you get in a car accident. It's because when you do get in a car accident, you don't want to die. Um... So it's like I mean, a lot of people don't even get in car accidents for like 20 year stretches of time, but you still put it on anyways, because when it does happen, you don't want to fly through the windshield. So that's kind of like what Greg Gipp is alluding to here. And that, that's a point that needs to be taken into consideration. So when you're thinking about stimulus, we clearly have these people in the mainstream press who, who live in their own universe where they, they, they describe the central plan in the Great Depression as a success. Um, there's all kinds of economic arguments you can make about how FDR isn't the one who led them out of the recession, but, but, but it's just the way they discuss it. It's just so disgusting because they, 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 they're like, yeah, see central planning kept farmers incomes up. And it's like, yeah, but you killed a bunch of food. I mean, you killed a bunch of hogs that will never be served to people and people are starving. So if, there, if there's low demand and price is low, then all those poor people, at least they can still afford more food. But no, we want to artificially keep farmers' wages up, and we're going to hurt a bunch of other people in the process. So those are the kind of people we're dealing with. It's people who are more than comfortable assessing those types of consequentialist trade-offs as successes. It doesn't matter that we did something that had these second and third order consequences that led to people starving in streets or or a million um, tenant farmers getting kicked off their plots of land. That's not important. The, the, the point is we helped some of the people and the other people starved and we're okay picking winners and losers. So it's, it's that kind of like lack of foresight that is clearly missing when they make these big decisions about stimuluses and, and omnibus packages. And the, the whole idea of saying there's no such thing as too much they could do right now is what excuses th this type of miserable spending package that even though it does give some people $600, it gives a lot of people $600, but it also shoehorns in a ton of things that aren't going to be good for the economy or it's going to be good for special interests, spe special interests or foreign countries or like strategic, uh, you know, allies in, in certain regions that have to do with the war machine. So I, I, I guess what I'm trying to say is the, the, these mainstream people are arguing in a way that gives cover to all the abuses of government that all of us despise. And it's, it's really insidious when you think about it and you kind of put those pieces together. Um, so the, the other couple things I want to point out is when, when we give a bunch of people money, and we have, we, we currently have a supply issue because what happens is, you know, obviously a bunch of, you know, service jobs aren't going to come back until lockdowns end. But we also have some supply issues where things aren't getting produced in the same quantities because factories are maybe working at lower rates because they have less people on staff because they have to abide by government regulations and so forth. So we have less quantities of goods. But even if this was a targeted stimulus, then if, you're, if the issue isn't the demand side, it's the supply side, and you just give people more money, then that's just going to cause inflation. 
because what would happen is you have a static amount of supply. The, the, the stimulus doesn't increase the supply. So the, the, the supply curve is static. Demand would increase, hypothetically, for a lot of consumer products. So that means the price would spike. So if, if, like, if we have issues where people you know, aren't able to afford as much food right now because people have lost their jobs and whatnot. So we, we, we end up doing a big stimulus and people are like, awesome, now I can afford to buy meat at the grocery store and I've been living off ramen. Well, guess what? That doesn't fix the supply issues that we've been having with meat for like nine months. So guess what's going to happen? Well, more people are going to be buying meat. Meat's just going to get more expensive. So it's, it's not going to fix all these other problems that are lingering around. It's just ignoring them by, by, by saying, hey, here, we want to give you guys stimulus. And, and the other thing is they, they talk about all these things. We need to stimulate the economy because that's how you get a recovery to happen. Well, these jobs that, you, <laughs> that, that are gone are gone because of the lockdowns. So if you think any kind of stimulus will bring back any employment numbers, it's, it's going to be unrelated. It's all going to be contingent on the lockdown policy because all the jobs that are lost are service jobs. As far as messaging goes, a lot of these service jobs are supposed to come back. So you're not telling these people, hey, you had a service job, you lost it, try learning new skills so you don't have to work in the service industry because it's not coming back. That's not the messaging that's happening. So these people are going to sit there until their region lifts lockdowns, and then they're hopefully going to get their jobs back or a similar job back. So acting like this stimulus in any way is related to this unemployment from a lack of for, 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 from all these people losing their service jobs, that they're just two completely unrelated issues. They are not hand-in-hand hand at all. So, so, so this is what we hear about there being like the V-shaped recovery and a K-shaped recovery. The idea of the V-shaped recovery is we had this huge crash in March and we'd all come out of it okay and we, we, we would have rapid growth. And we've seen that in things that aren't service-related. And the, the idea of the K-shaped recovery is we have the, the the top of the K, I guess, is people who are more high income kind of going up, but then the issue is like the people who are on the, the, the lower side of the um, average income in the United States aren't doing better. And it's obvious this is a result of lockdowns because you took away all the jobs those people have experienced and are qualified for, and then you kept places shut down. You did your best to destroy all these small businesses. You did your best to run out any of these service-based industries out of out of cities, and you told them they can't open. And then you're saying, why are we getting income inequality? Why why are minorities overwhelmingly disproportionately hurt? Why are all these service workers without college degrees doing so bad? This is so unfair. This is income inequality. This is capitalism's fault. No, it's the lockdown's fault. You're, you're specifically singling out types of jobs and saying that they shouldn't come back. And you're acting like the problem is there's not enough government stimulus when it has nothing to do with government stimulus. So all, all these things kind of flow together in terms of, I guess, overwhelming misinformation. You'd think that if you listen to Bloomberg News, you'd listen to these people and they'd, they they provide you with a coherent narrative that ties these things together. And they really don't. They, 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 all they really say is we know that stimulus is good when, when things are going bad and things are clearly bad right now because unemployment's high. But then they don't tie together like the few basic pieces that everybody who's on the ground knows and sees. So it's I, I try not to be as cynical and angry as possible. Although I do I do kind of like get, um, get getting fired up about it. But I, I I I guess what I'm trying to say is once you're aware of these like very obvious things, when you listen to this coverage, it, it's clear that I, I don't know if they're lying, but it's hard to imagine that they're this stupid unless they just see people's statistics. 
if they understand that all these people are people and that there's a narrative of their life, right, that you work in service industry and you've always worked in service industry because you didn't go to college and now you lost your jobs because of lockdowns, that a government stimulus plan that provides certain money for investments isn't going to bring them back because the lockdowns are still on. And the real issue is the lockdowns having disproportionate effects on different kinds of workers. So I, 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 I guess that's a, that's a basic intro to the whole stimulus discussion, to the whole issue of unemployment right now, the, the spikes we're specifically seen for the last six months, and why they're not getting resolved by the stimulus. And I, I am glad that there was somebody in the Wall Street Journal, a mainstream, um, a mainstream respected, are a, a person who I could cite and then people would take seriously. Because as much as I, I like to disregard those institutions, if I am actually trying to have a genuine conversation with somebody who listens to NPR, I do. you do need to be able to cite things like, well, here's an, a Wall Street Journal piece about why everything that foreign affairs columnist said is wrong. There can be too much stimulus, and that stimulus isn't going to fix anything. So you got to keep that in mind. But I, I guess what the other thing is, you got to really pay attention to what they're telling you in the news. And you probably know that, especially when you hear people from CNN saying, left-wing talking points you, you know those you recognize them and you dismiss them as you should but you need to remember to do that when somebody's trying to talk economics to you or when somebody's trying to talk to you about like certain specific policies because even though they might seem like an expert you have to really question what they're saying you have to line it up with the with with, 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 with your background knowledge on say economics and you have to you have to just bring it together with the basic facts on the ground like does this make sense or you have to ask them basic questions because I don't think these people could have would have particularly great responses other than that's not a real concern. But but we know it's a real concern. We know that if the United States dollar is stopping the reserve currency for the for the world, that the dollar would crash. We know that. That's an existential risk to pretty much our society. And uh, somebody's got to say something about that. We can't act like there's no such thing as too much debt and too big of a deficit. Um, so I hope you guys enjoyed that rant. Um, I hope you found it informational. And if you guys enjoyed, please check out future episodes and my backlog of episodes. I, I appreciate all the all the listenership. You can um, find me on Twitter uh, at, at the Obey Podcast, and you can send me any uh, di- any, any disagreements or any nuances. Um, I, I know uh, I think Tom Woods mentioned this several times that when he talks on an issue, he'll, he'll get like an email from Gene Epstein, and Gene Epstein will be like, "Yeah, eighty percent of that is great." But here's the 20% you really got wrong and why. So if you're listening to me for 18 and a half minutes and you think I hit the I hit the, hail, the nail mostly on the head, but there's like one or two little things that you think I'm completely misguided on, you shouldn't be afraid to send me a tweet and say, hey, I want you to reconsider these points. And if you're a person that finds yourself disagreeing with people who are libertarians or ANCAPs and you think you could listen to this whole argument and you have still clear like positions on why I'm wrong, I would love to hear it. Um, it's always good food for thought. And like, I, I'm reading Foreign Affairs magazine. I'm trying. I'm trying to understand what these people have to say. But 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 I'm not. I'm not finding the arguments remotely convincing. The more I read, it almost gets worse. And I'm almost. Uh, I'm almost more disgusted and kind of shocked by their reasoning sometimes. But I'm. I'm always. I'm always open to hearing from that. So th- th- I appreciate you guys listening, and um, I'll see you guys next time. Thank you. If you enjoyed the episode, please leave a rating or review on your favorite podcatcher or share the podcast with a friend. You can find out more information about the Obey podcast at anchor.fm slash obey podcast.
or on Twitter at The Obey Podcast. Until next time. Next time.